This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Thoughts. Do you think any of our outlaws were hot daddies? <laughs> what a segue. Um. Absolutely. Ned Kelly is older sibling raised the raised the siblings. Because uh, Red was in jail most of their childhood, wasn't he? I'm sorry. Yeah, he was in another, he was in another jail, and then he got like uh, he was an alcoholic, and then he got sick, and then he died. Yeah, um, so Red wasn't really around. It, Ned was the man of the house for so a long time. Ned and Red. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Ned Ned Kelly's father was Red Kelly. Yep. And what was the kid, Ted Kelly? Um, well, probably. They had Ned, and then it was. Mm. Oh, his other, his younger brother, who like went and became an outlaw with him, was Dan. Dan Kelly, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> he could have been a daddy, but it just didn't really work out for the him. Universe and didn't that's work upsetting. Out. Do you have to be a and, dad uh, to be a daddy? What about Dick Turpin? No. no. No, okay. Dick Turpin had, didn't have daddy energy. No, he did not have daddy energy. Still more of the, the Larrick and the himbo energy. Yeah. I don't even know if that's what I would call it. I feel Actually, like Dick Turpin... Actually, I don't think... I don't think Robin Hood was... Now that I think about it, I don't think Robin Hood was a, was a himbo. Mm? No. Uh, it's too violent. That's yeah. true. Himbos have to be kind. Yeah, Dick Turpin was mm. not... No, he was kind of a, he was kind of a dick, frankly. Yeah, Larrikin yeah. at best. Um, it, yeah, um, Robin Hood was not a good, not a good guy, by all accounts. Like the, one of the earliest accounts of, like fictional accounts, obviously, of Robin Hood. Um, Little John beats him in an archery contest, and so Ro- Robin assaults him. Is this the episode? Are we in the episode yet? I mean, yeah. Let's 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 just fucking start it. How, how do we feel about that? <laughs> no, I think uh, what we should do, I think we should keep this all in. Don't edit out the bit about daddies at the beginning, but still label the episode thieves. And yeah. can just like figure out when we start. Yeah, they can decide <laughs> yeah. for themselves. So, welcome to Dungeon Deep Dive. Uh, it's another week here in the studio. And by here in the studio, I mean in three different bedrooms. Um, coming, to, coming to you not live from the studio is uh, my regular co-host... Uh, it's me, Grace Chodell, and I'm here. <laughs> she is it. here. She uh, is spiritually, here. we'll have to find out. Exactly. Emotionally? Um, How about emotionally? I haven't been emotionally present since about 2014. That's the correct answer. Um, as you know, my name's Tully Grimley, and with us is our first ever... No, actually, that's a lie. Our second ever guest on Dungeon Deep Dive. Tell us about yourself. 
Oh, yeah, so I am a Virgo. I And her name is Brooke Riley, by the way. Colour painting. <laughs> no, I was building up to that bit. Hello everyone, my name is Brooke. Um I they I'm filling in for Lachlan today because Lachlan has unfortunately died. What happened? Where's Lachlan? Uh, Lachlan uh, is currently being murdered by a number of assignments. I actually, um, I actually have them tied up in my basement because I wanted to be on the episode. Uh, I just really want. I've wanted to be so. I've wanted to be on this dumb podcast for a really long time, and Telly wouldn't let me. Uh, so I was like, I guess I'll have to take Lachlan out of the equation. And here we are. It's worked. It has been since the first episode that you've wanted. Absolutely, to be on this podcast, yes. Why um, has it taken so long? I am full yeah, of Brooke chaotic, was, I think, sexy, our first useful energy. I absolutely was. I think you talk about it in one of the first episodes. I remember, I was re-listening to him the other day and you mentioned me by name and I was like, oh my God, I've made it. I'm pretty <laughs> sure from the very first episode, me and Brooke were like, oh, whenever you do, um, whenever you do guests, like hands up, like we're interested, we're interested in the only reason why I am the, the new host and not Brooke is just because of like nepotism. <laughs> Yeah, it, I just that managed. May well be I just it, managed yeah. to get in first and know someone. Just like you know, I had to Google nepotism. Yeah. Um, uh, so this week uh, we are looking at thieves, and it's a little bit of a different episode. We're actually going to take three different uh, case studies from throughout uh, myth and history and talk about them. Pretty free form. It's a bit loosey goosey <clears> this week. We are recording on the traditional lands of the Turrbal and Yagara people uh, of uh, Mianjin, uh, otherwise known as Brisbane. Uh, these lands are uh, are stolen land, and sovereignty was never ceded. Uh, but we would like to pay our respects to the traditional owners uh, and custodians of the land, and to elders past, present, and emerging. Uh, and if you do want to uh, have a part in this conversation, if you do want to speak on those issues, uh, please get in contact, and we'll have you on the show. Um, uh, get in contact uh, on all our socials at Dungeon Deep Dive, or email us at deepdivetnc at gmail dot com. Um, yeah. Sorry, back to um, Grace. Um, okay, so now that we know Ned Kelly's name and his brother's name and his father's name. That's it. That's all we need to know. Just, well, <laughs> I mean, basically. Um, so Ned Kelly was the third child in a family of eight kids. So, yeah, big sibling energy. Mm. Um, his father was an ex-convict who was sent to Australia for pig theft. Interesting. Uh, and... He That's actually cheap. a pretty high profile like theft as far as mm. like first settlers go. Those things Not are heavy. Pers- yeah, he stole two pigs in Ireland and then they were like, to the colonies with you, sir. I just pigs imagine him carrying like there were people who got served for stealing tea and bread. I just imagine him carrying one pig under each arm and then getting caught <laughs> and just dropping the pigs. <laughs> yeah. He was like, but then oh, oh, I don't know whose pigs those are. They just with me. Um, but basically, okay, so this was really weird the way they worded this, but he, he was a convict, he was released, he bought land, um, basically both his parents were ex-convicts and they were given land by the government under an agreement that they'd pay half up front and pay rent for the next seven years while they proved that they could, uh, use the land to develop the agriculture of the area because they were still trying to, like, set up proper towns and stuff. That's right. Um, I forgot about this. It ran really similarly to like the feudal system where the government owned the land yeah. and it would essentially have you pay rent to work the land. 
Yeah, so eventually once you you paid half up front and after seven years of paying rent and proving that you would be a responsible landowner because, I mean, you were all ex-convicts, you had to, like, prove yourself, that land was then yours um, if the government thought that you were responsible enough and you'd proved yourself. Um, the sort of land rights were a bit shaky and led to a lot of issues, but basically... I mean, land that. rights in Australia have famously been, <laughs> I mean, shaky at oh, best. Oh, yeah. Shaky oh, is probably the best word you could ever use to describe Australian yeah. land rights. Okay, so these land rights, I actually, I'll get to the land rights in a second. Basically, a lot of issues started happening after uh, Ned Kelly's dad was sent back to prison for six months. And this is interesting wording, but he was sent back for having meat that he couldn't account for. <laughs> same. Absolute same, my dude. I'm just absolutely packing and I just don't know why. <laughs> I mean, this is uh, this is pretty much a hallmark of the Kelly family's relationship with police from this point onwards. Pretty much, is yeah. they are essentially constantly being told that they can't do things that they have a right to because I don't know. This looks a bit suspect, so fuck you. Yeah, basically they were like, you have a lot of meat and you're very poor and meat is expensive. Where did you get this? Why do you have it? And he was like, I don't know, dude, this is my meat. I've bought it. I don't have, like, a receipt for you. And they said, oh, well, you must have stolen it. And they shipped him off to jail. Um, And he came back uh, an alcoholic and died shortly afterwards, um, which left his mother and her, uh, I think at the time there were five children, because uh, he had eight siblings, but I think a couple, uh, some of them died quite young. Hmm. Um, yeah, there were a lot of deaths in the Kelly family. Yes. There were a lot of kids, I mean, was, I mean like, statistically so speaking. F- yeah, it was pretty rough at the time. I um, mean, children, ch- you do just treat children like statistics until they reach about 16, right? That's, absolutely, that's yeah. Work. Yeah, it's just like, um, I mean, maths will decide if these ones survive, you know? <laughs> Yeah, basically. Um, but not only were they sort of, were they felt like they were at the mercy of the police, which they very much were, because they, like, being ex-convicts, <clears throat> they were constantly under scrutiny and they had to prove themselves in order to keep this land. So not only did they have to pay for it, they had to, like, uphold the reputation and create this new, like, image of themselves in order to be allowed to keep it. Um, but there was also something called the squatocracy, what now? Which was essentially, it's a, it's like a play on words. It's like the squatters aristocracy, where basically middle class to upper class farmers of the area would just like, because technically they said the crown owned the land and it was, wasn't developed or anything, these big farmers would just like let their cattle and their, um, their like livestock graze wherever and sometimes that meant that they grazed their livestock on other people's land and they were technically squatting on it but because they were like they had a lot of a they had more of a standing in the community nobody would say anything they were like oh you're rich nobody's using this land anyway so like you get to use it but somebody owned that and wanted to use it right oh dear okay i i can see where this Knowing a little bit about the Ned Kelly story myself, I can see where this is going to play in. Um, yeah, and it's so not good. Ba- <laughs> yeah, so basically... Um, so bas- uh, as a teenager, 
He'd been arrested a couple of times for associating with other bush rangers. He was accused of stealing a horse. Um, and uh, what you call it? He joined a, a gang called the Greta Mob, who apparently were referred to as bush larrikins. Like... They weren't outlaws or anything. They were just, like, a fun gang of kids that would, like, be a little rowdy and sometimes steal cattle and stock and stuff, but, like, nobody could pin it on them. The problem with Ned Kelly was his family was constantly being accused of stealing cattle because they were trying to start a farm on their land and somebody else was also sometimes using their land to graze cattle and other livestock. Mm. So... If one or two cows ends up in the wrong field or somebody says, that's mine, and they say, that's mine, then it was sort of like, you know, first in best dress with opinions on whose livestock was whose. Yeah, and basically because the police never trusted the Kellys in any dispute, the yeah. Kellys were <laughs> fucked. Even if they yeah. bought these cows, they were still fighting uphill to try and keep anything that they'd purchased. Yeah, um, and so it's, it's, it's worth assuming... saying that there's no doubt that Ned Kelly stole cattle and brought it home, but also that Absolutely. anything <laughs> legally acquired or otherwise was always going to the complainant. Yeah, so um, he was confronted about his involvement with cattle stealing at his family home, and it turned violent, and he... Uh... <laughs> He was charged with attempting to murder a police officer. Because, um, like, the cops showed up and they were like, hey, you stole cattle, come with us. And he said, I didn't steal any at all. I won't go with you. Um, and they said, I mean, they got into, like, a fight. And the cops were like, you tried to kill me. That's attempted murder. Um, and then his mum was arrested for helping him. And he was like, well, now you've gone and done it. You've got my mum. And I will get my revenge on you. But yeah, basically, so shortly after his mum was arrested and he was charged with attempted murder, him, his brother, and, like, two of their mates went and confronted the cops and they shot three of them. And obviously the cops were like, well, okay, you guys are outlaws now. Which makes sense, I guess. Yes, yeah. Um, mm. <laughs> yeah, so for two years after that, he dodged the police mostly due to the fact that he had like super wide network of supporters and sympathizers because a lot of that like that area was all very poor majority of them were ex-convicts and they were like yeah the police keep harassing us too and we're glad that you're fighting back um so he got a lot of help um him and his little gang robbed a bank in Yoroa and they raided a town called uh Gildery um just before they robbed the bank, he wrote a 58-page manifesto just, like, talking about why he did what he did and essentially professing his innocence, Oof. Um, mm. which is called... They have, like, a name for it. It's called the Gildery uh, Letter. Yeah. Um, oh, yeah, the Gildery Letter. Yeah. So, basically, wish... in this... Yeah. There's, there's The opening line is great. I wish to acquaint you with some of the occurrences of the present, past, and future. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, he's like, okay, listen up, I've got stuff to say. Um, so basically, he said in it, he admits to his crimes, but he says that he didn't murder the police when he came to his house. He's like, and this is a quote from it, he says, This cannot be called willful murder, for I was compelled to shoot them or lie down and let them shoot me. So he was like, they had it out for me from the start, and if I didn't stand up for myself, they were going to kill me. It was self-defense. 
Um, and it's Sorry. Constable Fitzpatrick that is the That's police him. officer in question. Constable Fitzpatrick, who becomes a lifelong enemy of uh, Ned Kelly and the Kelly Gang. It's very cinematic. Um, so the letter wasn't actually printed in until the 1930s in full. Oh, wow. They printed excerpts and stuff in in newspapers and things, um, but basically they were they were concerned that it would make him seem more sympathetic to the public, mm. and they were concerned that it would um, it would turn the the poor, which was the majority of the country, against the authorities. They were like, we we don't want to risk this because people already don't like us. Yeah, I mean, manifestos historically have a a really good reputation. Yeah, so in this letter, he describes the cops as a parcel of big, ugly, fat-necked, wombat-headed pig, uh, big-bellied, magpie-legged, narrow-hipped, splaw-footed sons of Irish bailiffs or English landlords. That was... I mean, pop off. He was was like, you guys are ugly and privileged and I hate you. You're mean. I just just want to really break down this... this, uh this insult ugly fat necked wombat headed big belly magpie legged okay so what we've got is a wombat head with a fat neck very large belly mm-hmm. but then magpie legs so i don't know how the magpie legs are going to hold this up yeah but then narrow hips as well so it's definitely like a so very top I'm heavy thinking, yeah i'm thinking of like an Eggman sort of thing yeah i think that's what i mean like shape wise that's what we're looking at just with all of the bulk happening at the top and then very skinny magpie legs and tiny hips yeah. as well so, so what i want to know here is this a, a sort of chimera that we can create for our games uh, i think so i think so that's so what i was thinking so let's work um the, what are the elements again there was a wombat necked so wombat okay. head the so wombat is the head a parcel of big ugly fat necked so fat neck wombat headed wombat head so big, big ugly, big belly animal big not belly. specified, just big belly. Big belly, magpie legged, magpie legs, magpie legged, narrow hipped. So that's where that's where the join between the big belly and the narrow hips is going to be an interesting mm-hmm. one to sort of figure out anatomically. Mm-hmm. Uh, splaw footed sons of Irish bailiffs or English landlords. Okay, so we so have to factor in the, the the English landlord slash Irish Irish bailiff heritage, right? Like that's got to come yeah. into play somewhere. Yeah. Slew footed. Yeah. Means... Splaw. S P L A W. footed. Oh, Okay, so they they face outwards. Yes. It's powerful imagery. Apparently, like people who read over this letter, and there's copies of it online. I just didn't have time to read it in full. Um, he he writes pretty well. Apparently, he didn't write it. He he read it out and got his mate to write it down because yep. he wasn't literate. And by all accounts, it's not very. It's got no grammar. It's not very like well educated, but the spelling's fine and it's very evocative to read. Everyone was like, "Wow." Wow, this guy knows what he's talking about. Mm, poetry. Beautiful. Um, so <laughs> after that, it kind of did all go downhill for him. Uh, in 1880, he attempted to derail and ambush a police train. And, oh, this uh, is failed. that's a really compelling story. That one. Yeah, he failed. It didn't. He didn't do it. 
uh, him and his gang were dressed in armour made from stolen metal and then had a famously drawn-out gunfight with the cops where Kelly was the only survivor and was horribly injured when captured. Um, obviously, they found him guilty of a lot of crimes and he was sentenced to hanging. And despite the thousands of supporters he had attending rallies and petitioning for his um, reprieve, he was hanged at Old uh, Melbourne. What is it? Old Melbourne Goal. If you want to, if you want to use the correct terminology. Yeah. Um. And so this is the uh, his final words. I'm assuming you're about to get to. Yeah. Yeah. Such such is life. Uh. They're not 100% sure that's what they're reported as being. That's what everyone goes with. You can see it on bumper stickers <laughs> and tattoos all over this wide and beautiful country. Yeah. As, a, as far as the Glen Rowan affair goes, so this is the Glen Rowan affair is basically parceled from the murder of Aaron Sherratt all the way mm-hmm. through to the last stand where they took the Glen... I think it's the Glen Rowan Hotel. Um, yeah. That's where they, like, fell back. Yeah. And then the police... uh, I I can't remember if it's the police or the Kelly gang, but someone set fire to the forest surrounding. And so there's this forest fire going, this bushfire going while there's this massive shootout. Um, I think Dan Hart got killed. Kelly is reported to have passed out five or six times throughout this, this gunfight. So... You can only imagine how wild everything was if they didn't notice that Ned Kelly passed out multiple times. Um, yeah, and this this sheet metal armor that they were wearing, which was so heavy that Kelly could barely move. Mm. Yeah, like they didn't have great, like they couldn't really do anything. You couldn't run in that thing. You could only really just like not get shot for a little bit. And this, I think, is the most iconic armor of all time. Yeah. I, I would go as far as to say, like, there is no set of armor that is more iconic, specifically, than Ned Kelly's armor. Mm. I mean, also, like, the, like, as much as they talk about the shootout and stuff as being, like, brutal and horrible, they did make very clear their plans for if they were successful with this train. Um, and it was they wanted to wreck the train and shoot dead any survivors, then ride to the unpoliced town. Because this was a police train, so they wanted to wipe out all the cops. Ah, uh, yes. Then ride to that town that the cops were supposed to be in, where they said they were going to rob banks, set fire to the courthouse, and blow up the police barracks. That's a lot. They then wanted to release anyone imprisoned in the jail, and generally, this is this is in quotes here, generally play havoc with the entire town before returning to the bush. So they were going to walk in, destroy this town, set free all the prisoners, and say, um, I, uh, a cab. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and so this is where there's this view of Ned Kelly as being this really well-spoken, well-thought-out uh, person who is uh, for the people and generally a very kind and forgiving person. Which I mean, is he was for a- the people. He was well-spoken. But he was not kind or forgiving. No, it doesn't yeah, seem. and that's the thing is, like, oh, there's, there's, it's one thing to be anti-establishment uh, or to be anti-police, and you can understand an anti-police sentiment definitely from the Kelly perspective. Like, 
there's there's no interaction that he had with law enforcement that ever went well. It was positive. But to deliberately go to kill an entire police train worth of people, mm. shoot dead any survivors, and then go to the barracks, kill any other policemen there, uh, and burn down the barracks. It's it's hard to reconcile that with that positive, like that almost idol that we've got for Ned Kelly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because like, the thing is, though, it was really only the cops that he had an issue with because, um, like, before the shootout, before before anything happened there, while they were still waiting for this train to show up, they had 62 hostages at the, at the hotel that we were just talking about. Whoa. And he had 62 hostages, and while they were waiting for the train to show up, because they had the hostages so no one could raise the alarm because they didn't want anyone to let the cops on the train know what was coming. Mm-hmm. Mm. And um, basically... For hours while they waited for this train to show up, uh, the gang insisted that drinks were to be provided to the townspeople and that music was to be played, and they just, like, hung out and got drunk and danced with these hostages. Yeah, they had a party. And, yeah, they just, like, hung out and had a good time. Um, Apparently one of the hostages was like, yeah, it was great. He didn't treat us badly at all. And, actually, he captured a constable that was in town and later let him go, believing that he was a sympathizer he was like yeah this is this is a guy who's doing this job because he has to survive and we think that he's sympathetic to our to our goals so we'll let you go home to your wife uh, and that was I mean, their undoing actually wasn't it because yeah, he was the one that raised the on. alarm that meant the train they stopped the train before the tracks that got destroyed yeah so uh the hostage that he let go did then go tell the cops what was happening and the train didn't show up. Yeah, because they he went out with the a lantern and stopped the train before the, the the derailed section and as a result, the cops then got to ambush the Kellys. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, once they realised that the, um, the the train wasn't coming, that their plan had failed and the cops were coming for them, apparently they uh, they sent all the townspeople home. They stayed in the pub and they let all the townspeople return home because they were like, look, um, we are going to stay here and fight and you can stay with us if you want, but, like, you guys can go home. Yeah. This mm. isn't – yeah. Uh, he sent them home and told the hostages to lie low um, – and oh, what did he say? Uh, go quietly to bed and not dream too loud. <laughs> Yee. It's all in all incredibly well spoken. Yeah. So he they they had a good plan. They had hostages. They had um, plans to stop the cops finding out what happened. And it was only because he said this one cop is cool go home to your wife and so you can look after her. And that cop immediately was like, I'm going to go to the cops. Man. That's rough. That's yeah. that's real rough that the one cop they ever trusted fucked them. Knocked. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he was reported afterwards as being the last expression of the lawless frontier in what was becoming a highly organised and educated society, the last protest of the mighty bush now tethered to iron rails to Melbourne and the world. Yeah. That was deep. Yeah, he's, he's very much the, the last bush ranger that we know of. That, like, he's the, the only one that I know of. As a, as, a, as a public image, he's the last bush ranger. Mm-hmm. 
because I mean after that uh, Australia really did become developed and start to like move slowly and slowly away from its um, its convict roots. They were trying to make themselves respectable. They were rebranding. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and this is my last point. I just thought it was a fun little tidbit. Apparently, when he was 11, he saved a kid from drowning um, and nearly died himself, and they awarded him with a green sash. It was just like a, it was just like a very nicely sewn green shiny sash, and he wore it under his armor in the final fight, and it's in the Benalla Museum. Uh, wow. Apparently, still stained with his blood. Ooh, yeah. Yeah, it's it's rife with symbolism. This story um, for anyone outside of Australia. I think most of our listeners are Australian, but we do have. Um, I think it was an Icelandic listener or a Swedish listener. Yeah, uh, hell we've yeah. We've got a couple of listeners. We've got a listener or two in the UK. Um, so to all of you outside of Australia, highly recommend you check this out. There's a bunch of really good movies. Um, there's one with Heath Ledger, I think, which is. I mean, it's a movie. It's a it's a big budget movie, but it's also, as far as the the main, the main points, relatively faithful to the actual story, uh, and yeah. great retellings. If not, um, uh, shout out to a, a guy called Benedict Braxton Smith. Um, he wrote a musical called Metalhead. Uh, I'm not sure if you'll <laughs> ever get a chance to see it, but if it does make it onto Broadway, uh, you have to. It's great. Um, but yeah, the story of Ned Kelly is rife with symbolism and stunning characters. Um, I'd like to, since we're breaking from format a little bit and doing three case studies, I'd love to talk a bit about what this means for uh, for an RPG standpoint. Um, yeah. So I really love this as a, a backstory because it's it's never outright tragic, but it is a story of constant constant belittlement and constant targeting from law enforcement and so as a reason to be against authority this is i think probably the most compelling i've ever seen Mm. which is just this it's this symbolic everyman who is beaten down constantly uh and who sometimes yes did it but at no point was awarded a fair trial at no point was awarded his chance to speak his mind Uh, And it manifests itself in this, okay, fuck it, that's it. We're going full on on outlaw now. Yeah. Yeah, which is really fun and really interesting when you consider that from the eyes of the law, that was just a no good family that got themselves in trouble time and time again and wouldn't learn their lesson before going off the rails completely. So, like, you Mm. look at this from either side of the story and it's still really compelling because it's either this like hard done by guy just trying to get by who's constantly attacked or it's like oh my god not this kid again didn't i teach you a lesson last week old man that's the thing if the police are already saying go fuck yourself why not just fuck that i mean you know what i mean like from their perspective it's like i mean they already think we did it guess we're gonna do it may as well do it yeah and as far as the way that they treated others they there is this really compelling narrative of always being for the people. I mean, they were known to burn debt notices. When they robbed banks, they would uh, demand the notices of mortgages and debts and burn them so that the banks couldn't prove that anyone owed them money. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah, this this really was... I mean, it wasn't exactly a Robin Hood story, although I'll get to that later. Um, 
but very much there was this concern for the common man uh, of yeah. like, hey, can I have those debt notices? Wolf, they're up in flames. Uh, oh, guess you can't prove it. No, oh, that's a bummer. That's a real shame. I wish you. someone would do that now. Less murder, uh, please. Though I mean, less with less murder. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I mean his his manifesto letter that he wrote, which he tried to get published into um, into pamphlets to have printed. Wow, he, like, just hand about on the street. Yeah, well, I mean, basically, he showed up in um, what you call it in the town that he was going to rob and he while they were robbing down the street when looking for the printmaker and he handed it to the printmaker and oh, what did he he said something basically he like threatened the guy down the printers he was like this better get uh here we go mind you it get printed or you'll have me to reckon with next time we meet jesus Christ. he was like he was so dedicated to having his word get out there and the only reason that wasn't printed was because the printmaker got on a horse and rode down to the train station to get to melbourne so he could like give it to a lawyer (laughs) oh boy jesus um Um, and they didn't print it they refused to print it because they said that it was like it was it was too controversial i'm just noticing just even little bits of this story uh, which really do... It's its such a snapshot of Australian life. Uh, like, here we are. Um, so, the £8,000 £8, reward money was divided amongst various claimants. £6,000 went to the Victoria Police. Superintendent Hare received £800 of that. Wow. Uh, seven Aboriginal trackers involved in the siege were each awarded £50, but their money was given to the Victorian and Queensland governments for safekeeping. The reward board's argument being it would not be desirable to place any considerable sum of money in the hands of persons unable to use it. Oh, my God. Now that, oh, my God. That basically entirely sums up uh, the interactions of any Australian uh, Australian government with uh, Indigenous owners of land. Uh, is, sake. hey, we're going we're gonna to pay you a token sum for your help, but also we're not going to give you that money because, no, 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 you, it's, mm. you can't use it properly, so we'll, we'll keep it for safekeeping. It's, we'll, we'll look after it. Jesus That's basically Christ. the land rights arguments all over. Is yep. Oh, yeah, it's your land, kind of. No, it's ours, we'll use it. But yeah. like, it's, you weren't using it anyway. Yeah. Um, um, there's, also, oh, there's also a good snapshot in one of his letters where he talks about... Um, the sort of police corruption um he he wrote here if a poor man happened to leave his horse or bit of calf outside his paddock they would be impounded i have known over 60 head of horses impounded in one day and then he names the cops that did it and he says all belonging to poor farmers uh that would have to leave their plowing or harvest to other employment to go um and he names one of the like richer farmers in the Mm. area um and perhaps not have money enough to release them so basically, he was like, "You're targeting poor farmers who have no other source of income, and this is like destroying their lives and their business. And they'll never be able to prove themselves responsible landowners and be able to stop paying rent on this land because you keep you keep like destroying their their business, their livelihoods." Yeah. Hmm. And again, if you want to pit the the town police or the town guard as the bad guys. This is the perfect way to do it because they can, in theory, protect their actions as being lawful, but every witness can say that they are being unfair. Yeah. 
it'd be, it'd be good. It'd be like a good game to run. <laughs> yeah, um, I've I've for a long time wanted to run. I, I just I need to talk to some people about uh, land rights and representation because I, I don't have that knowledge myself. But I've I've really for a long time wanted to run a game using the Savage World system uh, in colonial Australia um, because I just think that's such a compelling. Uh, narrative uh, that that whole area because you've got so many different groups in play uh even from the nationalities of um of convicts before they were brought into australia um i mean there's there's a really interesting part in this story where there's a dispute between ned kelly and uh, a chinese pig farmer uh called Fook. um now, Chinese farmers were not held in very high regard at all, uh, mm. but they were just one rung above Kelly in the social standing, and so they believed a, a Chinese uh, pig farmer, a pig and bird dealer from Morse's Creek, because he was seen to be more reputable than an Irish convict. Um, and this is this is a time... I think it's 1869. This is in the midst of the gold rush. Um, uh, Asian migrants were seen as vultures because they were known to... Uh, there were many cases where people would go uh, mining and panning for gold. They wouldn't find anything. And then uh, Chinese migrants would come on and they would repan the area and they'd find all the little bits that people had missed. And so they were seen as vultures swooping in for uh, to take people's hard-earned money. Uh, so sentiments were not great. I mean, let's face it, sentiments to immigrants in Australia always been bad, um, despite the fact that everyone with an anti-immigrant uh, stance is an immigrant uh, to some degree. But um, it, it was so bad back then. Uh, and yet this, uh, the Kellys were seen as lower in that social caste, caste system than a, a Chinese farmer. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm, I just think that little, like those little details that you find throughout, are such a snapshot of life at that time. I um, I've uh, got Ned Kelly's Wikipedia page up because I am just I love to research. Um, but uh, I was just reading about all the things that happened to his body after he died. Um, because oh yeah, yeah, they said his body was dissected by medical students who removed his head and organs to study, but then like dissection out of a colonial inquiry was illegal. So there was all this public outrage about like, they dissected this body that wasn't part of a colonial inquiry. And then the students were like, no, the commissioner of police or the go- the jail's governor was like, no, no, no dissection took place. But then like, they had a look at the body again in 2011 and a dissection had taken place. And then his grave was robbed. And then his skull was stolen on a separate occasion to the grave being robbed. Um, just sort of, and then, like, the skull was, like... Apparently the skull was, like, back and forth. They didn't know where the skull was for a very long time because it was stolen and then found again, but it wasn't until 2010 that they con- they confirmed that the one that was found was the same skull. Mm. They, um, they used one of his uh, ancestors to uh, supply DNA to check the, like, remains. Mm. Uh, his 62-year-old grandniece... Wow. Hmm. Um, which I'm pretty sure the only surviving members of his family were the three younger daughters. Gosh. So it would have been one of their children. Mm. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. Man, imagine being one of those girls. You're like just like a 20-something-year-old woman in colonial Australia, and your family reputation is trashed, and you're like, well, well I guess I'm not getting myself a rich husband like I've mm. Think about their lives, though, because, I mean, their, their family reputation is completely trashed because they are associated with the Kelly gang, um, but they have no breadwinners in the house. Um, mm-hmm. f- no, None of the former breadwinners of the house because... Um, Red obviously died quite early early on in the story. Oh. Ellen Kelly, who is an absolute boss, by the way, um, just stunning woman. Um, Ellen Kelly, again, was mistreated and, and died. Um, and so... And Dan Kelly, obviously, was associated with the gang, so also was not there. Uh, other siblings died early on. So you've got these three younger siblings who have no money, no land... Uh, no home, suppose like I'd suppose they're pretty much in colonial Australia trying to make their way on their own. Mm. So I, I'd actually be really interested in looking at the stories of their lives and seeing what you, what we could dig up from that. But that's that's a whole other research project. <laughs> yeah, I imagine it's a lot. It's a lot harder to track the lives of <laughs> like two poor socially outcast women in mm. colonial Australia. Oh, I'd imagine it's rather difficult. <laughs> yeah. There's um there's an ongoing issue with tracing uh like working class women throughout history because they didn't they weren't allowed to own property. They weren't allowed to like go to school or anything. So oh, there's God. no paper trail. Yeah. Um there's a lot of like diaries of upper class and middle class like upper middle class women. Um, who like kept them for school and for um, housekeeping purposes, but mm. anyone who actually had to like do all the housework themselves, there's just like no, there's really no account for it. Yeah, yeah, and you got to wonder how literate um, they were mm. taught to be before they no longer had access to education. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Wild. Ned Kelly was illiterate. He he got somebody else to write his letter for him. Yeah, he he dictated it, didn't he? Yeah. It's it's absolute icon of, of a man and definitely worth looking up the story if you don't already know it because um, there's so many interesting elements to it. Grace, the final question, uh, is he a daddy? Um, he is daddy. Yeah. yeah. I actually uh, I actually think he is daddy. Yeah, slightly, slightly unhinged, uh, but real paternal energy, real mm. daddy energy, but also, like, definitely a hottie. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, look at the photos of him. Yeah, I, yeah. There's that the really famous photo, which is that sepia side portrait. Mm. Mm. Like, oh, there's the mugshot of him aged fifteen, and God, he's like, he's a man at that point. Is that the like, one with the? He's still got quite a, a young mm. jawline, but he's he's a man. Yeah, he has some aggressive eyebrows. They're very straight. <laughs> he does have. But that cowlick, look at his yeah, hair. Yeah, see, that, that's is, the photo I'm talking about. The, the photo that's on the, the, hair. the one on the, the mugshot on the day of his execution. Uh, to If you just look up Ned Kelly, uh, the Wikipedia page has it uh, as mm. the, the photo the of photo. him. But it has this perfectly combed sides, uh, this swept up waves of hair uh, on the top. He's got this huge bushy beard. And yeah, he's just... 
this intense stare. This is um, absolutely what Tully Grabelli wishes that his hair would do. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this, this is the look that I want to go for. Beautiful. Well, uh, let's jump from uh, Ned Kelly over to uh, Dick Turpin. Oh, are we? Okay, okay. Firstly, first thing I'd like to say is I did Dick Turpin, but then I also did a bunch of research on um, interesting female themes because I was like, mm, I want that diversity. So I don't know if you want me to do both together, but I have a whole thing about Dick Turpin, but then also a bunch of small things, a bunch about a bunch of cool ladies. Yeah, do the, do the whole lot, and then I'll, uh, I'll finish up with Robin Hood. I might do the ladies first because we were just talking about the mother being... Uh, kind of a boss bitch. Um, Yeah, Ellen Kelly, absolute boss bitch. Absolute boss bitch. And I will have no argument against it. Um, So I've also... Okay, yeah, I'll talk about my beautiful ladies first. Um, I just wanted to know about cool female lady thieves. Uh, Turns out there was... There was plenty of them. Um, Probably not as many as there were dude thieves, but, you know, that's just... The patriarchy, am I right? It's at this point where Grace's microphone shuts off, so she's going to be conspicuously absent for the next hour, but we've tried to edit around it. Enjoy. Um, there is I have no boundaries to the glass ceiling. No. Oh, my God. Just let me let me do crime in peace. Thank you very much. Um, so these are just like, I just have like little pieces of information about them all because I think they're so interesting. Um, probably one of the most famous female thieves is Bonnie Parker of Bonnie and Clyde. Um, of but course. Half of that duo is a dude, so I don't really care. Um I mean, I care about the body part of the Clyde Park and get fucked. Um, uh, when I was doing research, one of the fo- most famous highwaymen I found, because originally I was looking at highwaymen specifically, um, I found mm. a highway highwayman, uh, highway woman called Catherine Ferris. Um, and Catherine Ferris is really I interesting. She was name. active. She was active in uh, middle of the 17th century. So 1634, she was born. She died in 1660. Um, she also got a reputation as the Wicked Lady. Um, so that was the name Ooh. that she sort of became known as. She uh, was married off at a pretty... She was born into luxury, which is really interesting. Like she was born to a pretty wealthy family. Um, hmm. uh, she was born into nobility because someone... But then she became the sole heir to her grandfather's fortune. Uh, she was married off to her younger stepbrother, which was... Sorry, Catherine. Um, but, Ooh. like, she was, like, rich and, like, married to a husband who, firstly, she was related to and also was out fighting in the war a lot. And so she just kind of got bored and decided to start doing crime, <laughs> which is really cool. <laughs> um, That's amazing. Um, so this description is from a website. So this is a rogue um, with the noble background. Basically, yeah. This is the description of her, and I really love it. Uh, something of an evil Bruce Wayne. She is said to have had a secret room tucked away behind a staircase in her manor, and it is here that she prepared for her raids. Uh, donning the traditional highwayman's garb, a tricorn hat, a black mask, and a cloak, she took off each night through a secret exit on the back of a jet black horse. Um, like, the other thing that's interesting about her is, like, she was loaded. She didn't do this for the money. She did it for the shits. Like, she did it for shits and giggles. Um... She just enjoyed terrorizing travelers, and that was it. Um, she would. She got a bit of violent sometimes. She would occasionally attack and uh, brutally murder her victims. But like, if you're not in it for the money, oh, why not go hard or go home? Um, she is also thought to have slain cattle, shot a policeman, and burned down houses with their occupants still inside. Um, so just kind of a little bit of a, use, a loose unit is what I'm getting at here. Mm. Um, and then she died when she was 26. I don't believe the her exact scene of her death is known, but I think she was... It sounds like she was wounded and killed during a holdup. Um, so, that was, uh, that's Catherine Ferris. 
Um, I read a little bit about uh, someone called Alice Diamond, who was part of this thing called the 40 Elephants Gang. Um, so this was in the UK. Um, there was this gang called, I think it was the 40 Thieves Gang or the 40 Knights Gang or some shit. Um, but uh, Alice Diamond started a gang or was part of a gang called the, the 40 Elephants, which was a gang of female crime bitches, basically. Just like this gang of like ladies who would like party and like, do the regular flapper things, but then also would do crime. Um, they uh, were known by police as the cleverest gang of hoisters in London, because mostly what they would do is shoplift. Um, and they would just, like, had an incredibly tight bond. There was, like, this group of just, like, cool ladies who would just, like, dance and then shoplift, and they would just, like, fuck everyone else. Um, I thought that was cool. I just like so, the idea of this cool, badass female gang doing crime. I, I love... This, so the, the imagery of this too, so at the time where she was active was mid, was between the two w- w- major world wars. That was the big time where she, like, was the height of her crime career. When the height of the average man was five foot six inches, uh, she was, she came in at five foot eight. Um, and she That's wore, hot. she wore diamond rings on the fingers of both hands and could deliver a punch a man would have envied. Um, I just I let her punch me. This... That's all I'm gonna say. I love the idea of this like six foot two, uh, like mm. this six foot two lady dressed in a flapper dress uh, with diamond rings on both hands, who will just knock you flat on your ass. That's all uh, I want in it's... life, please. Oh man. Um, so that's Alice Diamond and the uh, Forty Elephants Gang. Uh, next mm-hmm. up, I did some research about Frederica Mandelbaum, who was uh, called by the press at the time as the nucleus and centre of the whole organisation of crime in New York City. So basically, Frederica Mandelbaum, uh, who became known as Mom, ran a massive, what a, what a queen, frankly, ran a massive crime syndicate in New York, um, would never do any of the dirty work herself, but would organise uh, like a legion of, like she had pickpocketers, she had con men, she had people who had a cap- like would crack safes and she had absolute mother energy that's for sure she actually financed a crime school uh called mom's grand street school where she would teach kids to come in and teach them how to pick locks and open safes um one of her students was a guy called adam worth who became a very famous thief uh around the time um mom was of course uh arrested at some point but also so loved by the community that she was let out on bail and she fled the country with a million dollars uh, and then she like lived in Hamilton is, in Canada and died at like eighty six. This is a, a million dollars in what nineteen. Uh, so Frederica was active in eighteen sixty two and eighteen eighty four. She was active. Mm. So like Jeez, that million that would have been worth that's a lot of fucking money. Yeah. So just like huge mother energy from her. I really enjoy that. Um, I did a bit of research about uh, Stephanie Saint Clair. Who was known uh, either by known as by known as Queenie, but to the Harlem residents, known as Madame Saint Clair. Um, so Stephanie was born in the French West Indies. I believe one of her parents was French and the other one was African, uh, and then they migrated to the United States in 1911. Um, a bunch of kind of whack stuff happened to her that maybe is a bit too much to go into right now. But she got fucked for her, um, and then. Jeez. In 1917, so six years after she moved to uh, the US, 
She invested $10,000 of her own money in a clandestine lottery game in Harlem and then slowly began to work her way into the numbers game in New York. And by the end was basically running the numbers game in New York um, in the early, in like the 1920s. Um, so she was involved in policy banking. Yeah, policy banking, um, uh, investing, gambling and playing the lottery. Uh, one of the biggest reasons that she was doing this is that banks at the time wouldn't accept black customers. So they couldn't invest their money legally in any way. Um, and so policy banking wasn't technically legal, but it was the only way for like black individuals in Harlem to invest their money at all. Um, so at the same time as she was just like absolutely destroying the numbers game in New York, she did a lot of like uh, political work in terms of uh, addressing race issues in Harlem and like things like police discrimination and brutality. Um she is known to have been uh, one of the only women involved in the numbers game at the time um, and did a lot to help the black community by providing them with jobs as numbers runners um, and just like other jobs that she had in the business. Um, and obviously she made bank because that's mm. the point of doing money things. And also um, being the boss of the money things. Oh, absolutely. Uh, owning the money things. Um, and was known to put out ads in local newspapers to educate the community about their own legal rights and voting rights. And she would often call out police in newspapers uh, for brutality against the black community. Oh. Um, yeah, so she got called out. Uh, she, got she would complain to local authorities about harassment uh, and then they would ignore her. And then instead she would put advertisements about police in the Harlem newspapers accusing uh, senior police officers of corruption and so of course they arrested her for it um but what happened when they arrested uh, uh, she spent eight months in a workhouse in response she testified to the Seabury commissions about the kickbacks she had paid police officers and those who so she basically knocked on a bunch of police officers after they arrested her um which is like i'm okay with you being a narc in that one like the the please knock sweetheart knock. yeah it's absolutely counter narc and she got uh, like more than a dozen police officers fired <laughs> oh man if that's not a compelling story um I, I really like this i really like this chick um she also so at the end of prohibition uh jewish and italian american crime families started to see a decrease in profits and instead moved into the Harlem gambling scene so essentially the mafia moved into the gambling scene that she was in uh and the mafia would do those mafia things where they would uh beat up and kill number operators but then pay like it'd be like if you don't pay us protection then we'll murder you um, and Stephanie was one of the only people in the numbers game who just never submitted to the mafia, like just would never give Jesus. in to them. Um, they, yeah. So like they threat, they faced massive violence and intimidation, but what St. Clair did, what Stephanie did was, uh, attack the storefronts of businesses that the mafia ran, uh, tipped police off about him. <laughs> Uh, so the police raided, because uh, the main guy who was running the mafia at this time, it was a Bronx-based mob box called Dutch Schultz. Um, the police raided his house after she tipped them off, uh, and he got a dozen employees arrested and $12 million seized, which is the equivalent of $172 million in 2019. Holy shit. Um, yeah. Shit got even more fucked after this, because she retired from the numbers game because she was a bawling, obviously, and married a guy called um, Sufi Abdul Hamid, who was known as the Black Hitler because he was incredibly anti-Semitic. Uh, and then a bunch of shit happened. He, by himself, is wackadoo, and I was going to talk about it, but I was like, well, I've already been talking long enough. Uh, and then, But then they broke up because he was cheating on her, and then she just, like, retired, but, like, continued to, like, write columns in her local newspaper about discrimination and police brutality and illegal search raids and just, like, other issues that the black community faced. 
Anyway, I'll die for her. Imagine, imagine being the person to to cheat on, like, well, to, to cheat on anyone, but also specifically to cheat on the queen of the Harlem numbers game. Yeah, who didn't submit to the fucking mafia, like. Oh fuck me! Uh, I'm gonna destroy you. <laughs> Yes, fuck me. That's exactly what I'm asking for. Yes. Here. Please, Stephanie. Um, and then, I don't really know much about this. So anyway, Stephanie St. Clair, incredible, uh, incredible uh, just crime queen. Uh, and then I read a little bit about someone called Bar- uh, Ma Barker, who was uh, the mother of four children who ran a crime wing. Um, she didn't do anything, but her kids did, essentially. And she was known as the most vicious, dangerous, and resourceful criminal brain of the last decade. And if that doesn't sound like the crime equivalent That's... of Chris Jenner to you, then I don't know who does. Not only that, that is a quote from J. Edgar Hoover, the president yes, of the, the United president. States. Yeah. Uh, um, there's a this lot of is controversy. The that inspired the Boney M song, Ma Baker. Yeah, um. <laughs> there's a bit of controversy about how much she actually participated in. Like, there are some people who testified that she didn't do anything, but a lot of people who are like, "Yeah, she," they're like, they're her kids, and her kids did a lot of fucked up shit, and she absolutely ran it. Um, I mean, she travelled with her kids when they went yeah. on yeah, absolutely. criminal sprees. So, if nothing else, she was the matriarch of a crime family, um, which in itself at, very at cool. Most, mm, and at most was actively involved and planning. Yes. Uh, she big... was killed in a shootout, too. She yeah, was she in was. Yeah, she was. Yeah. Very big Chris Jenner vibes, if you ask me. It's absolutely um, something Chris Jenner if... would do if it was... You know, absolutely. Um, if you ever want to... Want an earworm, though, Boney M, Ma Baker. Mm. Mm-hmm. Height yeah. of disco. Height <laughs> of disco. Um, anyway, so there's a bunch of just really cool female thieves. Um, I think I... You know what? Women can steal too. Um, oh, I forgot to do my joke that I was going to do. The f- I was going to do a joke when we opened up, and I was going to be like, "Let's talk about the first thief, me," because I'm going to steal your hearts on this episode, everyone. Anyway, now that I've talked about uh, some hot women, let's talk about the one hot man that exists. The listeners at home, you all heard of Dick Turpin? Um, if you've ever watched the television show Horrible Histories, then you should have. Um, I didn't know who Dick Turpin was up until I saw the Horrible Histories video. Um, but Dick Turpin is an English highwayman who was, I'd say, I'd say he's pretty big in the UK. Uh, so to the 1.7 people that listen to this from the UK, you probably learned about him in school or whatever. Um, but he's, I would say, gained some notoriety ever since Horrible Histories made a music video about him starring Matthew Bainton, who is... Matthew Bainton, realistically, is the one hot man that exists. Uh, He just played Dick Turpin, and as such, now Dick Turpin is legally that hot. Um, There's this whole thing about Dick Turpin being, like, romanticised, because someone wrote a book about him and spewed all these, like, just, like, said all this stuff that wasn't true, sort of, like, you know, jingled some, I don't know what the sentence I'm trying to say here is, but made him sound fancier than he was. And and as such, he really got romanticized in like film and TV and stuff. But then what Horrible Histories did was they made a video being like, you shouldn't have romanticized me. I was a real dickhead. But they made us the most just like sexy video ever. If you, uh, if you haven't seen, just like Google, go to YouTube and Google Horrible Histories, Dick Turpin. Might I also recommend watching, there is a very good video, uh, Drunk Histories did an episode with Joe Lysett about Dick Turpin, and it's funny. Oh. I just recommend it. Um, but if you don't want to do that, I'm going to talk about it. <laughs> um, uh, fun fact, 
The uh, the Dick Turpin article on Wikipedia is one of 5,000 featured articles on Wikipedia, so you know this is good content. Um, Dick Turpin was born... Oh, he was a Virgo. How interesting. He was born in 1705 uh, and died in 1739, but no one cares about that. Dick Turpin uh, was a butcher in his early life. His father was a butcher, so he followed up in the butchery trade. But then, obviously, shit gets a little bit whack. So he was working uh, as a butcher in Essex at the time. Is that correct? Another place? It's the, he's working with the Essex gang, so I'm assuming he was living in Essex. Um, but there was all this stuff happening at the time with uh, this Essex gang, also known as the Gregory gang, who were deer thieves. They were big into deer poaching. Um, but around the time that Dick Turpin was doing his butchering thing, uh, his legal butchering thing, that is, just killing like animals legally, um, deer poaching was becoming a lot more heavily regulated and, like, they were making the they were upping the fines against it. Um, so in like the late twenty seventies and the, eight, the early seventeen thirties, there started to be all these regulations putting plaques, including one called the Black Act, which per forbade hunters and people from disguising themselves or like painting their face black so that they could hunt at night. Essentially, they outlawed blackface so that you couldn't hunt uh, because they didn't want people hunting deers and stuff. Um, uh, when they first brought the Black Act into place, there was. Uh, they also put out a reward for people who helped catch and identify uh, deer thieves and just like general game thieves, uh, and then a pardon for thieves who turned in their colleagues. So in 1972, I believe, or 1971, there was a £10 reward for anyone who turned a thief in, but because it didn't really fix things, they made it a £50 reward two years later. So uh, you would earn £50 if you turned in a deer thief, um, but... That is the equivalent of eight thousand pounds as of twenty twenty, or fifteen thousand Australian dollars. So you get fifteen thousand Australian dollars for turning in a deer poacher, basically. God, the fifteen k narc tax. Yes, so there was fifteen k deer narc tax, and so the Essex gang who were doing this, who were deer poaching, were like, "We got to get rid of these deers that we've poached. Um, how about we sell them to a butcher? Uh, Dick Turpin, you're a butcher." Uh, so that's how allegedly uh, Dick Turpin first got in with the Essex gang was by was through their deer poaching. Um, and so he just sort of started to vibe with these homies. He stopped butchering, uh, but at the same time, the Essex gang stopped deer poaching, uh, and they all moved into just sort of general robbery. Um, they would just break into houses and rob people, you know, just like, you know, your stock standard B&E kind of thing. Um, most of their home robbery heists would net them around £300, uh, and that was all well and good until when in 1735 they tried to rob a dude called Joseph Lawrence. Um, and this was a bit fucked, obviously. Um, so they broke into this dude's house and he was like there and he was awake and they wanted to take money from him. But Joseph Lawrence was like, no, I don't want to give you any money. So they dacked him. They pulled his pants down to his ankles and they dragged him around his house. Just like that, with just dacked with his pants around his ankles. Okay, so uh, it was funny when you said they dacked him, and then they dragged him around the house. Yeah, by it his gets ankles. less. It gets it was a less, lot funny. less funny. It gets less funny. Um, so Lawrence still refused to reveal the whereabouts of his money. Uh, Dick Turpin beat Lawrence's bare buttocks with his pistols, so they spanked him with his pistols, bruised him, um, and other members of the gang hit him on his head. Hit him, hit him on his head with pistols. Uh, they emptied a kettle of water over his head, forced him to sit but ass naked on the fire, and pulled him around by the nose and hair. 
um, one of the other dudes in the Essex gang, um, uh, someone, Gregory, uh, took one of the maidservants upstairs and raped her. So it was all got a little bit fucked by this point, obviously. Um, and after so, all of that, they escaped with less than £30 pounds is, worth of stuff. Realistically, once you have that much control over somebody, surely you just tie them up and rob the place. Like, yeah. this was unnecessary acts of cruelty. Yeah, so I think part of it was that uh, he had his money stashed somewhere and he wouldn't reveal where it was. Um, but also, there's a lot of things that happened that didn't need to happen because they were, I mean, he was bad. Yeah, it was a pretty bad one, that's for sure. Um, and slowly after this, they the Essex gang started to break apart. Um, they they worked in like small groups, like, like these four people would work together and then these two would go over here and work with these people. Like they'd work in different groups, um, but they weren't particularly active from 1735 onwards. Uh, I did read this one sentence, which I really liked, which was, they weren't active in the same way, uh, but the remaining members of the Essex gang were not reported again until the 30th of March, when three of them, and then in brackets, unsuccessfully, tried to steal a horse from a servant of the Earl of Suffolk. And I am just curious about the imagery of successfully stealing a hearse versus unsuccessfully stealing a horse. Because I imagine that someone is riding this horse as they're trying to steal it, and that's probably not what the situation is. But I do really like the visuals of them trying to steal a horse while there's someone on it, and then being unsuccessful. Thoughts on that, everyone? Like, they maybe try and pick the horse up, but then they're like, fuck, there's a dude on it, and they put it down and they run away. Just the image of three thieves trying to pick up a horse yeah. is very funny. Like, they're big things. Horses yeah. are big. Just like Horses pick it up on your big. shoulder. Yeah. It's very yeah. much a three stooges kind of thing. Mm. But anyway, so you could uh you know, that's something you could do in your, your role playing campaign is steal a horse but unsuccessfully. Um <laughs> You roll a horse <laughs> and the horse takes a shit on you. Uh, that's unfortunate. Um, so following this, uh, in it really sounds like the actions of an automatic, like like a computer generated DM, where it's like a neural network has taught this thing how to how to run a game. It's DM, like, uh, steal the horse. You pick up the horse and put it in your pocket. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a really good. Uh... Like, it was on Instagram, but it was a screenshot of a Tumblr post about someone who's like, I had a really good idea for a D&D character that is just a talking horse. Because, like, the mother was, like, half centaur and the father was, like, a minotaur top half horse. And so it's like one of the kids is a horse and the other one's just, like, a normal human. It's just, like, there's this really good description about, like, this party breaking in to a castle and they hear, like, a knock on the door and the people who live in the castle open the door and it's just a horse standing there. And they're like, what do we do? A horse just knocked on the door. But then the horse is like a D and D character who takes you out. God. Anyway, good horse content. Um, in seventeen thirty five, Dick Turpin uh, sort of started to officially get into highway robbery. Um, this is where he began to be known as a highwayman. <laughs> That's the name. Um, so in April, he uh, he just sort of started doing doing crimes on the road. Um, he started working with a guy called Thomas Roden. Uh, and they would just, like, hit various points along the highway. Um, they got a bounty put on their heads for £100 uh, in the latter half of 1735. Yeah. Um, in August, they robbed five people on a coach. Uh, and then they attacked some... This is just sort of accounts of them. They just sort of did a lot of robbing. They did some more robbing. And then they did some more robbing. Uh, 1937, he was involved in a horse robbery. So he did... That was one of the big things he did, was rob horses. Uh, and again, I don't... I don't know how. Um, he began to work with a guy called 
Matthew King slash Tom King. They don't really know what his name was. He's known uh, probably... He's been incorrectly identified apparently as Tom King and then his real name was Matthew King. But he met Tom slash Matthew King because he tried to rob him. Uh, and this is what Joe Lysett talks about in his uh, Drunk History bit was that he goes to rob this guy and the guy's like, you can't rob me, I'm a highwayman too. And then they bond and then they start to rob people together. One thing I do like here is there's this concept that there's this thing that happens all the way through is every sort of character that they meet has some sort of nickname and so we end up uh, at this point of highwayman uh, dick, uh, dick turpin now known as turpin the butcher along mm-hmm. with thomas rowden the pewterer um, yep. and i really like the idea of uh, as a as a gm specifically um assigning your players characters nicknames from the public so they don't yeah. have a say in the nickname and the public know them as one thing, whereas they're another name. Yeah, that was like um one of the female ones that I was talking about had, uh, I don't remember what it was, but had like one name that certain parts of the public... So like Stephanie St. Clair, for example, was known by Queenie, but specifically by people in Harlem was Madame St. Clair. Um, and like, they just like... And like, like things like uh, the Mafia do it a lot. Like I read a lot mm. about a lot about like female Mafia bosses and stuff who would, had names like the Flamingo because when she had a few drinks, she would get like rosy pink um yeah there was one who was oh that's who it was it was the 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 kissing bandit um there was edna murray um so there was a criminal called edna murray who became known as the kissing bandit because she kissed a male robbery victim but she was known in the underworld to other criminals as the rabbit because she was really good at breaking out of jail um so that's interesting as well like the idea of like the press gives you one name but like your other crime pals call you something else yeah, I've I've not yet, and like to be fair, I don't watch too many actual plays, uh, but I've not yet seen in a camp in a campaign somebody like the players being given a name by the world because mm. it's very much like as a as a DM, you want to give your players agency in the way that they present themselves, but it's one thing to give them agency in the way they present themselves, and another to say, hey, here's how your actions were portrayed. <laughs> Yeah, um, and it's manifested in this nickname that you got. And um, uh, Lachlan, if you're listening, and I know that you're not, uh, you are absolutely going to be union maker. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so they were working at the time with Matthew King slash Tom King and Stephen Potter. Um, there was an incident where they tried to steal a horse, but a bunch of really wacky shit happened because the guy they they stole a horse from a guy called Joshua Joseph Major, who reported the theft to Richard Bays. And now Richard Bays is a guy who is in part responsible for all of the romanticization that happened because he wrote a biography about um, Dick Turpin that was just, like, half fact, half fiction. Um, so R- Richard Bayes, before he wrote this autobiography, obviously, biography, obviously uh, tracked the horse down. The animal was identified, uh, but because the animals had not yet been collected by their owners, they elected to hold a vigil. Remind me what a vigil is. It stays awake. Yep. So they had the town basically hold a vigil so that these horses wouldn't get fucked up. So Matthew King's brother then showed up and they and was apprehended by the party. Uh, John King told him the told the police the whereabouts of Matthew King, who was waiting nearby. So basically, Matthew slash Tom King's brother knocked on him, uh, and then there was a fight. So I believe what happened in this fight is that Matthew was fighting with the constable, and depending on if Joe Lysat's telling is correct. Matthew was like, can you shoot this guy? And then Dick Turpin was like, bang, and shot Matthew King instead of the constable. 
Um, so Matthew King slash Tom King at this point died potentially by Dick Turpin's hand, although probably not on purpose. Following this event, uh, Dick Turpin ran away and escaped to a hideaway in Epping Forest, where he was seen by a guy called Thomas Morris, who was uh, a servant of one of the forest keepers, and not wanting to be caught, Turpin shot him. Uh, and I believe this was Turpin's first like actual proper murder. Um, and so that ends it's up being the whole thing, because now he's a murderer too. So you mentioned that uh, Richard Bayes was the one that did a lot of the romanticization. Mm. Um, mm. There's actually, I've just found a, a little excerpt from the original text, mm. uh, which describes the event of Turpin killing uh, King. Yeah, so and... there's a lot of conspiracy about like what the actual event of this was, the, mm. the murder was. And what it, the way it's described in this text is that King tried to shoot Bayes, uh, but the, the gun misfired. It, it flashed in the pan, mm. and so no ammo left. And hearing the gunshot... And seeing that uh, he was going to kill Mr. Bayes, Dick then turned around and just, after Bayes goes, you need to shoot King, he shoots Bayes instead. And the the words are, um, oh yeah, Dick, shoot him or we're taken by God. Uh, and then the following line is, Dick, you have killed me. <laughs> 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 me? Sorry. Sorry for the inappropriate joke. Me when, me when quarantine ends. <laughs> there we go there it is got it out there lads there we are done um thank you very much thank you uh and yeah because that was a whole that ends up being a really big event because like it because Bayes obviously survived that um so mm. Bayes survived Bayes was shot but Bayes survived and then Bayes wrote a biography um and but King died in this instance um and then he killed uh Thomas Morris he's dead um, he did some more highway robbering at this point. There is a sentence here that just says, Turpin may have also lost his mount. So question mark, we don't know if the dude's got a horse right now or not. Um, then they stole some horses. Uh, the horses were selected, suspected as belonging to highwaymen and uh, his wife. He had a wife. I don't know where the wife comes into this. Uh, was released without charge. Uh, and at this point, ah, that's what happened. This is the important bit. Uh, following the, the killing of Thomas Morris, the servant that he killed in the forest, um, the bounty was up to $200. So 200 pounds, sorry. So at this point, he's got a 200 pound bounty on his head. Um, and so it's at this point that he fucks off. Uh, he boarded the ferry in and uh, takes on the, the alias of John Palmer. So from, 19, from 1737 onwards, he starts to be known as John Palmer. Um, because obviously Dick Turpin is like, there's a 200 pound bounty on that fucker. I want to be someone else for a little bit. Um, he ended up in, he traveled between uh, Yorkshire and Lincolnshire. He posed as a horse trader and would hunt with the local gentleman. Uh, and then there's this whole fucking situation where he shot another dude's cock, uh, specifically his game cock. On the 2nd of October 1738, Turpin shot another man's game cock in the street. Uh, while being uh, rebuked by John Robinson, who I think is the dude who owned the cock, uh, he threatened to shoot him as well. And so there was all this sort of cock situation happening with Dick. You've been waiting all episode to see, use that sentence, haven't you? Dick had a real cock situation. <laughs> and yeah. also, have you met me? Yeah, true. true. <laughs> I should have seen this coming. The moment you said Dick Turpin, I should have said, nope, not happening on this uh, the Christian podcast. Um... 
<laughs> okay, I'm sorry. If this is a good Christian podcast, then you shouldn't have let me on at all. It's it's 9.50 at the moment, so legally I'm allowed to say whatever I want. This is OnlyFans hours. No, no, you're not uh, allowed to say anything that you want for another 10 minutes. <laughs> okay, 10 o'clock. Then I can make dick cock jokes. Um, so they threatened to bind him over, and I don't know what that means, because now we're talking about binding him with the dicks and the cocks. Um, but I think what happened is that they sent Turpin to jail. Um, and he was actually kind of chill about it. Um, he didn't make any escape. So he got sent to jail for, for the game cock, for the cock incident, but also for threatening to shoot a man. But he was actually kind of chill about it. Like, despite everything else that happened, he didn't try and escape on this occasion because, and I quote, it has been suggested that Turpin may have been depressed about failures in his life. So he had sort of a depression jail stint. Um, he was just in just like a, a house of corrections, like a chill jail. But then they had some suspects that he'd also been stealing sheep and horses. And then they were like, this man is too dangerous for piss baby jail. We're going to take him to a beefier jail. So they took him to a beefier jail and they realized that he'd stolen horses and stealing horses was a capital offense, which was punishable by death. So from this point onwards, they were kind of like, they're mm, probably going to murder this guy for stealing those horses. Um, but they weren't a hundred percent sure that he'd stolen the horses because he was known as John Palmer. Um, so then some wackadoo stuff happened. Uh, Turpin slash Palmer uh, wrote to his brother-in-law um, and sent him a letter. And I think the letter was basically just like a, here's the situation, um, please help me. Uh, but the letter came from York. Uh, and so it had a, a York post stamp on it. And so when it arrived at his brother-in-law, his brother-in-law was like, I don't know anyone in York. I'm not paying for this stamp because this is the olden days where to receive a letter, you had to pay for the stamp. Um, so he was like, I don't know anyone in York and just re refused the letter. The letter went back to the post office, uh, where it was noticed by a postman called James Smith. Uh, and James Smith, funky coincidence, James Smith taught Dick Turpin how to write. And so when he saw this letter, he recognized Dick Turpin's handwriting and went, that's not John Palmer. That's Dick Turpin. Took it to the police and got 200 pound bounty for Dick Turpin. For catching John Palmer slash Dick Turpin. Yeah, so he got two hundred dollars, two hundred pounds for recognizing handwriting, uh, which is the equivalent of thirty-two thousand pounds in twenty twenty, which if I just do some quick maths, sixty-two thousand dollars. Thirty-two thousand pounds. So yeah, so it was two hundred pounds at the time, thirty-two thousand pounds now, sixty thousand Australian yep. dollars now. Sixty thousand. Holy yep. shit. Um, so Turpin was officially charged with the theft of uh, three horses, a mare worth three pounds, a foal worth 20 shillings, uh, and a gelding worth three pounds. Um, he was taken to trial, but obviously uh, this is, you know, the 1700s. The uh, you don't get a defense barrister at that point. So the accused never had any right to legal representation, um, and their interests were cared for by the preceding judge. Um, so a bunch of people testified, including the guy who they stole the horses from, and James Smith, who recognized the handwriting. Uh, Turpin didn't really offer much in the way of questioning his accusers. He was just kind of like, no, I didn't do it. Um, which is, you know, you're about to be murdered. I think that's probably what most people would do. Um, Turpin told the court that he had bought the hair that bought the, the, the horses and not stolen them. Um, and kept, uh, talking, like he kept trying to justify that he had changed his name to Palmer because it was his mother's maiden name. Um, but obviously that was bullshit. Um, so on the first jury, he was caught guilty of stealing the mare and the foal. And the second proceeding, they charged him guilty of stealing the gelding as well. 
Um, he kept complaining that he didn't have enough time to form his defense and that uh, proceedings should be delayed until he could call his witness. And also he wanted the trial to be held in Essex. Um, before sentencing him, the judge asked Turpin if he could offer any reason why he should not be sentenced to death. And Turpin said, it is very hard upon me, my lord, because I was not prepared for my defense. That's it. He was just saying he wasn't prepared. Give me enough time. Um, uh, and then they were like, yeah, you did the things uh, and now we'll murder you. Um, so before his execution, he had a lot of visitors. Uh, the jail was apparently... The jailer who was looking after him at the time earned a hundred pounds in supplying drinks for him and all of the people that were like coming to visit him in his final days. Um, he, yeah, that was pretty fun. Um, he bought a new frock coat and shoes so that uh, on his last day he could look fly. And he also paid for five mourners to arrive so that there'd be five people there crying for him. Uh, Cause that was a thing you could do back in the day was buy mourners when you mourners. were hanged. Yep. Um, wow. and uh, yeah, and then they, uh, he was hung. It was a short drop method. So, uh, Turpin, this is a, a sentence that I don't know where this sentence came from, but it's in quotation marks. So someone said it, uh, Turpin behaved in an undaunted manner as he mounted the ladder, feeling his right leg tremble. He spoke a few words to the topsman, then threw himself off and expired in five minutes. Um, so he died. That's what happens when you get hung oh, is you die. God, um, his body... Minutes. Yep. Oh, no, they, they actually left it there. So he died in five minutes, apparently, but uh, the short drop method yeah, but that's, was that's quite five a... five minutes of oh, yeah. strangulation. It's a very long time. Um, because it's a, such a slow strangulation, they leave the body there all afternoon, just in case it takes for ages. So, like, realistically, he could have been there for hours, very slowly being strangled. Yeah, so um, the, 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 the horrific nature of short drop versus long drop mm. just hit me. Like, long drop, they snap your neck, it's over quickly. Short drop, yeah. that's agonizing. Yep. Yeah. Although, if you want to give your players a second chance, so here's uh, back to D and D. You want to give your players a second chance after being hanged for for their crimes, give them five minutes of strangulation to get themselves out of the situation. Yeah, figure out what you can do in that bad boy. Um, his body was buried, and then it was stolen a couple times. Um, they think that they maybe it was stolen for medical research, and now they don't really know where the body is. They think they have the body in the right place, but who knows? Uh, and anyway, that's Dick Turpin. Uh, so there's wow. a lot of a lot of false information about him uh, completing a 200 mile journey overnight and having a horse called Black Bess and blah 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 all this stuff and also just being a real lady killer. Um, none of that is confirmed. So we know he didn't do the journey. We know he didn't have a horse called Black Bess. He had horses for sure, but we don't know what the fuck they were called. Uh, and we do not know how much puss he slayed. Um, but if he looked anything like Matthew Bainton, I would have. You know what I mean? So that is a a sordid tale. Mm-hmm. There we go. That's Dick Turpin. Highwayman and Rapscallion. Oh, yeah, that's a word um, for it, isn't it? Oh, occupations. Butcher, poacher, burglar, horse thief, and highwayman. Mm-hmm. There you go. And possibly father. Possibly, yeah. It says it says he might have had a kid, but no one really knows. Uh, but the question is, mm. is he a daddy? Uh, yeah, I don't think that he himself would have been a daddy. Matthew Bainton, absolutely. Uh, mm. But... Dick Turpin, the real one. Meh. Um, looking at the the portraits given, this is the uncle that has all sorts of wild and wacky stories, and you're not sure which of them are true, but you know some of them are. Yeah, and that's the scary bit. This this uncle is completely broke, but shows up with a Ferrari. Uh, Robin Hood. <laughs> so I am going to be pretty light on the details for Robin Hood. Um, there is rumour 
that Robin Hood is based off a real highway, uh, real like robber. Um, and in fact, there are a few convicted criminals with the name Robin Hood or Robin Hood. Um, Robin being a diminutive of, of Robert, uh, which is an incredibly common name. Uh, and Hood meaning anyone who makes hoods, wears hoods, or sells hoods. Uh, the name Robin Hood is the John Smith of Old England times. Or maybe not the, the John Smith, the Robert Smith. Yeah, it's very common. And as such, it's very hard to tell if there is actually a real Robin Hood that the legends were based off. But the first clear reference made to uh, the the mythical Robin Hood uh, is in the poem Piers Plowman, uh, which was published around about 1370s. Um, And the earliest surviving copies of ballads of Robin Hood uh, are dated back to the late 15th century, so about 100 years later. We all know Robin Hood as like uh, robs from the rich to steal, so robs from the rich to give to the poor. Uh, is really uh, the common person's hero is this really courageous person and generally very like cunning. The earliest v- versions, um, Robin Hood is uh, very devoted to the Virgin Mary, um, so likely Anglo-Catholic, but also uh, is famous for his anti-clericalism, so really didn't like a religious establishment, which is in the time of the, the 15th century. Uh, I mean, the, the religious establishment pretty much had a stranglehold over the over the entire of England. But uh, he was a stunning archer, uh, known to have a special regard for women. Now this, in all of my research, this was never clarified. So I'm not sure if this means Robin Hood was a ladies' man or Robin Hood respected women. Um... <laughs> Couldn't tell you. It was also a, a yearman, which meant kind of like the, the common person, not a peasant, but also not a noble. Um, just kind of like your working man. Mm-hmm. Um, and was the early like relationships in there were animosity with the Sheriff of Nottingham and uh, other characters included Little John, Much the Miller's Son, and Will Scarlet. Uh, there was no uh, Friar Tuck and there was no Maid Marian for quite a long time. Um, they were added later. So, also things about Robin Hood in the original stories is um, he was a violent man. He was really violent. Uh, there's uh, a, a recount where uh, Robin Hood and Little John have an archery contest, and Little John wins. And so, what does Robin Hood do but immediately assault his friend Little John? Just beat beats the shit out of him right there. Um, is also... Uh, at one point in one of the stories, uh, Robin Hood gets arrested and uh, Much the Miller's son comes to rescue him and in the process m- just straight up murders a, a page boy. A, a little oh, no. page boy. What the fuck? Yeah. Uh, and Christ. that's... They make no bones about it. It's just... Yeah, yeah. He, and, he, and he murdered a little page. Um, and there's no reference of him ever... Uh, of him giving to the, to the poor. Um, there's the earliest sort of... Maybe reference to him giving to the poor is in um, the story uh, "A Guest of Robin Hood," um, where he goes. He's walking down the road, and you know he gives loans some money to a knight who'd befallen some bad circumstances. And then he says uh, something to the effect of, um, "I'll give money to the next person who comes down the road if he's a poor man." Um, the next person who comes down the road is a rich man, so he doesn't give him money. 
but it's believed to have been like the statement of the general rule of thumb of, oh yeah, I'll be generous if somebody needs money. Mm-hmm. So the whole legend is said from here to have spread through folklore and spoken word, as well as these Robin Hood games. I couldn't... It became very hard to research Robin Hood games uh, because most of the time you get video games with Robin Hood in it. Um, so it became, yeah, really tough to actually research what this meant. But what it seems to, from what I've seen, is they were kind of plays that were put on with audience interaction. So it strikes me as sort of an early pantomime. Um, hmm. Yeah, and this later later became associated with the May Day celebrations. Um, and even more so, this is uh, believed to be where Maid Marian and Friar Tuck joined the story. Because there was actually... Ta- uh, plays with Maid Marian and plays with Robin Hood. And that's where they started to mix was it went from Maid Marian in one and fr- and Robin Hood in another to a show with Maid Marian and Robin Hood. Yeah, it's it's not until uh, a uh, The Annals of England by John Stowe uh, published in 1592 that it's first stated that Robin Hood actually stole from the rich and gave to the poor. Uh, so that's a solid... 220 years that wow. Robin Hood was just a, a general scoundrel and rapscallion uh, and so uh, it's really interesting to, to I, I thought this was really interesting from a DM's perspective where this story of maybe a, a real criminal but maybe mm. just folklore has become told and told and told again and it evolved from this common man not even a a poor man in some cases he was a noble fallen from grace um in others he was a rich man who'd lost lost his stuff in others he was a peasant sometimes he was a yeoman a couple times he was a knight but in all regards he was a champion for the everyman maybe there's some question historically if he was meant to be like a symbol of the peasants revolt but a couple of historians have actually rebuked this saying that he being a religious man being uh, an, a common man um, and being devoted in these ways to uh, to good values that he was actually seen as upholding the status quo rather than being against it. So it's, it's wild that, to think that because of this evolving folklore, he went from being just a story about a criminal to being this, this folk icon. Mm. And I love the idea of treating your players' characters that exact same thing, uh, having them like come across a town and discover they're telling the tale of an earlier adventure of yours, but where your story is sort of sorted and you've done some shitty stuff, like any D&D party would, you know, uh, killed an entire you know garrison full of guards or whatever, it becomes this tale of how you swindled the local, the local lordship and gave the money out to the townsfolk. I think it'd be really interesting to give them the Robin Hood treatment and see how they take it. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to do the opposite as well, like introduce your party to this person through folklore and then you meet them and they're a bit shitty. Could be fun. Yeah, and I I also love this sort of ambiguous nature of is this person real or fake? Because Mm. there is actually a real grave um, that is devoted to Robin Hood, but almost definitely fake. Um, It's not known if the real Robin Hood... There are a couple of like real Robin Hoods that were active in the 15th century, but the first mentions were in the first known mentions are in the 14th century. 
Um, also, Robin Hood being such a common name. Um, his crimes at the beginning being very, very, like, so-so. Mm. Um, it's wild to think that this is... or This almost is believed to have been, like, an alias that some criminals took on. Um, kind of like a Dread Pirate Roberts kind of thing. Um, but less lineage and more... This is, like, the John Doe for criminals. It's interesting it's as like, well that, like, we, wo- we won't really know. You know what I mean? Like, there's not really no. any way now of figuring out it's just this sort of like man this is a dude but maybe he wasn't a dude yeah we will never know if yeah maybe yeah and that's the thing is it's probably best that we don't know but it's amazing that this piece of folklore is maybe real and has evolved so much and it's it's interesting the story treatment that you can take out of that I really like this sentence on history.com um, at the end of the the end of the, the words. It says, What we do know is that the notion of a brave rebel who lives on the outskirts of society fighting injustice and oppression with his band of companions has universal appeal. Whether he's played by Errol, Finn, Errol Flynn, Russell Crowe, Crow, or even, as on a 1979 episode of The Muppet Show, Kermit the Frog. So what I'm getting from this is the real Robin, the real Robin Hood was inside Kermit the Frog the whole time. The, the real Robin Hood was the friends we made along the way. Yes, and that's Kermit the Frog. Mm. Um, yeah, so this is, I, I just think, a, a fun case study in folklore and these characters that pop up. Because mm. um, you can have a, a hero who robs from the rich and gives to the poor, but it's so much more interesting to have the idea of a character that robs from the rich and gives to the poor with nobody ever having received money from a Robin Hood. It could also be like, you know, this folklore starts by nature of, like, your party just being lying dipshits. Like, uh, our party has done this. Mm. People have been like, what did you do? And we go, actually, we kind of nailed it. And then, like, you accidentally start this folklore of, like, how lit you were, even though a bunch of people died. Yeah. So that's that's Robin Hood. I told you you guys at the beginning that uh, I was going to be a bit loosey-goosey with this. But, um, that felt yeah, pretty. That's... That felt pretty solid goose to me. Thank you so much, Brooke, for coming along for your your debut on the podcast. I'm sure it's not going to be the last time you, you'll it appear. It better not be, because I'll murder you. Um, thank you, everybody, for sticking through to us till the end. Again, you can if you want to get in contact, you can catch us at our socials, uh, at Dungeon Deep Dive on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, uh, at deepdivetnc at gmail.com. As you've heard in previous episodes, we will give you a shout-out if you email in, and we would love to hear more from you. And... Um, uh, I think here we have definitive proof that Lachlan's ramblings are not the reason we run overtime. <laughs> it's all of us. <laughs> yeah, this has removed all plausible deniability. It's definitely all of us. Okay, I am willing to admit that I absolutely ramble, but if you thought for a second that you, Tully Grimley, were not part of the problem, then you were wrong. Oh, I knew it. I just <laughs> I reserved the right to give Lachlan shit for it. Um, of, of three people to run a podcast, it's a bad combination. Because we just talk and don't stop. Because it's probably a bad idea to ever have me on as well with all three of you. Because Jesus Christ. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to sub somebody out every time we have a guest yeah. on. Because I'll have to, I'll have have to steal ridiculous. one of you and put you in my basement. Uh, and so when you let Lachlan out, uh, they'll be back for another week. Um, in the meantime, thank you so much, everybody. Uh, enjoy your games and if you use any of the stuff that we talked about please let us know we would love to uh, have your input on it 
Hello everyone, my name is Brooke. You've heard me talk for the last two hours. Um, I've been doing this thing uh, called the Brooke and Friends Online Open Mic and they are very good fun. Um, Teleperformed at the last one, Grace drew um, some incredible beautiful lesbian cowgirls at the last one uh, and we're doing another one. Um, it is a public event so if you just go to Facebook and search for the Brooke and Friends Online Open Mic, the next one is on the 8th of May. It's going to start at 7pm. Uh, we'll just go live on the Facebook Live event uh, and the theme is Happy New Years. No, I will not be taking questions about the theme at this time. If you have any questions, please direct them to Telly Grimley because it's his fault. Um, it's it's the 8th of May and it's Happy New Year's. Um, but they are exactly they're exactly what they sound like. They are online open mics. Um, if you have any talent and are interested in performing, please let me know because I'm always looking for performers. Uh, but they have been uh, an all-round good time the last couple times we've done them and I'm very excited to do this again. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Grace, once again. Uh, it's always a pleasure uh, doing this with you. Um, Thank you, Lachlan, uh, and apologies that you couldn't be here tonight. Um, hope you get out of the basement soon. Yeah, we'll to all see. our listeners, catch you next fortnight. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.